Yeah, the chain of events was like you somebody chopped down a tree and built a musical instrument, and then somebody learned how to play it, and then somebody composed something on it, and then somebody on this other end over here learned how to make a microphone out of some potassium sulfate, some crystals, and then amplified it with some transistors and tubes and all that. Like, And then they got together and made a recording, became a record, this thing with grooves, and you can see it. You can actually see the music in it. Hello, and welcome to Here in LA, Water Village Edition. Today, we sit down with a very special guest, Mr. Money Mark. He's a musician, a music instrument collector, and a carpenter. You might know Mark from his many solo albums and also his work with the Beastie Boys, where he was instrumental in helping them discover their musical style once they decided to shy away from samples. We'll talk about what it was like to build the G-Sun studio right off of Glendale Boulevard, growing up in Gardenia, where he was the illest mm-hmm, and where he likes to eat now in Atwater. So please welcome Money Mark. So what'd you have for breakfast today, Mark? I had a um, vegan chocolate donut and a decaf oat latte. And um, I, I, I ate some of my leftover um, middle, um, Mediterranean food from Dune last night. Dune is in Atwater. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the Dune in downtown, but it's basically the same Dune. Um, yeah, I'm not really drinking caffeine right now, but um, during the Beastie Boy days of recording Check Your Head in Atwater, across the street was a an Osteria, Noni's. Now it's called Hail Mary, I think, but it was called Noni, and we went there every day for <laughs> lattes and and dinner. Hey, everybody. I am here with a musical legend, Money Mark. Mark, welcome. Welcome. I'm I'm uh, glad to be here. It's a nice uh, situation you got here. Like, it's cozy. Thank you. Uh, we, we are going to be talking about Atwater Village, um, where Mark has done some of his, his best musical work. Um, we'll find out... Uh, some of his favorite spots. I actually lived in Atwater when you were recording with the Beastie Boys in the 90s. Oh, wow. I was there for the um, for the earthquake. Mm. And... And the riots. You guys may have been involved in riots. I was... 92. I was... I was. Uh, oh, you know, I, I was still in Santa Barbara then. Oh, okay. Um, so anyhow, Mark, uh, great having you. Um it's. I think a lot of people don't realize that you were on pretty much every Beastie Boys record except the first one. Um, Paul's Boutique, I may have been in there playing ping pong. <laughs> that was you playing ping pong? But uh, not officially on that record, but I was definitely around and getting to know... Um, just hanging out with them, getting to know them. Are you good at ping pong? Oh, no. No. <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't try. I, I mean, I think I could be good, but... Um... <laughs> Everything's practice, right? 
Okay, so yeah, the, according to Malcolm Gladwell, everything is just that's practice. right. Ten thousand hours is that his thing? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you have an incredible origin story in regards to the Beasties. You correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm wrong a lot. You were fixing the gate of the studio, or Mario C invited you. Um, to- there was a there was a um, the, when the Beastie Boys came to Los Angeles, they got a deal at Capitol, and they came. To, they all three moved to Los Angeles, and they they were all in this one house. And even the Dust Brothers were in this house, the G Spot, up in the hills. Okay, the, the G Spot was the house that they rented from the old couple. And that's um Yeah, it was I guess he was a director, right? And then she was a costumer or something. And then... Which is where they got their cool clothes for their their uh, their video. <laughs> yeah, their cool seventies. Bro- I clothes. think they broke into the closet, you know. Which they weren't supposed to like open this certain door and they did. It's like you tell someone not to open it. Don't tell the Beastie Boys to not open that door. <laughs> they opened a lot of doors. Um and one of them I was standing behind. Um, no, Mike had crashed his car into the gate and it was bro- busted. Oh. And then I was working as a set carpenter on the Hollywood Center Studios lot, um, working on, there was a Pee Wee's Playhouse was going on and I was doing, building a few things for that set. And then- uh, Hold on a second. That was <laughs> one of the best TV sets there is, right? It was pretty cool. I mean, I wasn't the AD on there. I was just working for the set company that was building the sets for the designer and then so like cherry and, and globy and all the, that yeah. the, the 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 door for the cowboy guy yeah well so so i was uh, my my team was uh like me and a couple other people were in case they needed something like on a whim like oh we need a baby stroller or we need something you know and then we'd build it really quick so the yeah. line if you if you give him some wood he'll build you a cabinet that's right Absolutely. You are that guy. That's right. I have wood right here. Yeah, I see it. I've and been, I look- clearly I've been need- looking at it. I've been waiting for you to turn your back so I could like <laughs> sneak it out the door. Okay. Were you always this gifted at carpentry? Uh, I, I, you know, I studied theater and, and music in school. So uh, in theater, I, you know, there was, uh, I was interested in being an actor but at the time, there wasn't really that many roles for me to, you know, I could play a gang member or something, you know. But so like, like it's totally opened up now. So and probably way too late for me to get into it. But um, impossible. I learned, you know, how to build sets, you know, how to make a world mm-hmm. on stage. So you know, I got to swing a hammer and I got to paint and then do all this stuff. And so I, out of school, I got a job at this. Um, um, Center Bar was what it was called, uh, the set company, and then that lot used to be Zoetrope. The um, oh yeah, used to be um, Coppola's lot, and I guess I guess he lost it after he made this movie, One from the Heart, mm-hmm. um, which was he did this forced perspective of Las Vegas, uh, a, a Las Vegas Strip. Um, Tom Waits, Crystal Gale did the score. I love that movie actually, and I was so happy to like be working on that lot and then walk through those sound stages. Um, my drive home from uh, Las Palmas uh, was to to the freeway. Halfway in between there was delicious vinyl offices, and a buddy of mine, Mario C, had been working in there, and the Dust Brothers um, producing this unknown artist named Tone Loke, mm-hmm. and they made they struck it big with this uh, uh, Wild Thing song, 
and Matt Dyke uh, and the Dust Brothers and Mario put a bunch of Lil's records together for Delicious Vinyl. And I'd stop there and smoke a joint and play piano and, you know, goof around with some music with them for the longest time. But I was still known as the, you know, the guy who could swing the hammer and, you know. <laughs> and then uh, when the Beasties came to town, they hired the Dust Brothers to produce Paul's Boutique. That's right. And then there was a Mike Hit the Gate and uh, uh, then I was called to fix it. And then, <laughs> and then I remember that night, uh, after, or I finished the gate and I think Adam pulls up in his car. Um, Horovitz and it's like, hey, there's a party tonight. Come to the party. So, I come, I go to the party, and then we all walk in together, and, and everyone just thought that I was part of the New York posse because oh. they didn't really know anybody in Los Angeles. Mm. But it was like a party of inviting people, and um, um, more or less, that's kind of how it started. We got to know each other, and we kind of were, you know, found uh, our like-mindedness, and you know. Just and I had collected a bunch of musical instruments for I don't know what reason for the longest time for my whole life, and um, all of a sudden, those musical instruments are being put to use, and I'm building a studio now. They, um, it was Mark, Mario, and Mike and Adam um, searching for a place to build a studio. Um, the I'm I'm doing all the talking here, so um, that's that's good. <laughs> so, um, and as the story goes here, the Paul's boutique costed them so much money in samples. Um, their accountant kind of dictated to them that uh, they couldn't do that again, and that um, the rest of your money, which is very low at this point, you're going to have to figure out how to stretch this money into making the next record. And really the only way to have done it, and also for the reasons of like the major labels at that time, you know, things were changing in the music business and the label, uh, the labels kind of were giving the bands license to, you know, to cultivate their own fans. So the, the Beastie Boys got their imprint, the Grand Royal imprint. And so Capital's like, fine, you know, if the thing fails, that we won't have our name on it, you know. <laughs> so it's is, like, is that why they? Well, I know, you know, I heard that. I was like, right. you know, like the the Beastie Boys knew their fans better than the the major than the people in the office at the at True. the at the record label because things were just turning so fast. Um, and, and wasn't the thing that uh, Capital put all their uh, effort into the new Donny Osmond record instead of yeah that was the joke at the time yeah but which wasn't a joke it was like it actually happened yeah um, <laughs> which is great I mean who doesn't love Donny Osmond yeah but but who doesn't love Donny Osmond raise your hand oh I see it but but still they're coming off of the the the, the biggest debut album ever of a group why wouldn't you think. Well, maybe uh, I we'll, don't know. Maybe I don't we'll put a few bucks behind the. I don't know place. all those strategies. I think the idea of like, um, you know, being an, uh, categorized as a novelty act, it doesn't work for you. It works kind of against you. Oh, is that yeah. what they were considered? You think? I, I, I think so. Huh. Yeah, that was the perception. E even though Run DMC and LL Cool J all came out of Def Jam and they were respected, right? Because they were um, white, they're a novelty. Hmm. Maybe, you know, I have, I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I, I'd say that um, nobody at the time knew hip hop was just going to like change the world the way it did. At that moment, it was right. still like guitars and, you know, 
uh, guitars versus samplers, I think guitars were still winning. But now, you know, we, yeah. at, at this point in 2022, we have seen and now we are believers. <laughs> Mark, did you grow up in, in L.A.? I grew up in Gardena. I'm the illest motherfucker from here to Gardena. That's you too. Which is, okay, one of the greatest lines in rap. Wouldn't you think? You think so? Well, because it's it's the epitome of the Beastie Boys. It's it's parody. I, I like I like uh, Keyboard Money Mark. You know, you know he ain't having it. Just give him some wood and he'll build you a cabin. Just give him some wood and he'll build you a cabin. That's a great That's one not too. one of the greatest lines in rap history, but it's one of my favorite lines. But anyway. It, it's okay. No, uh, it, it, that yeah. one that one's great because it's it's super hard to rhyme. And I, I can't see I can't see any many other hip hop people trying to pull that rhyme off. But from here to Gardena, especially when License to Ill was so East Coast based. Right. To drop that in right. is basically saying, oh, yeah, we're in LA. Yeah. Gardena was the all American city. So you're going to go to all these neighborhoods. And when you get to Gardena, I'm probably going to, you're probably going to call me again. But uh, um, Gardena was one of the first uh, dubbed one of the first all American cities. This was probably in the, the middle 80s that the, this all American city. Kind of slogan was what what made uh, Gardena because it was just a melting pot. Oh. It was like you know, it was a true melting pot. Did you go to Gardena High? I went to Gardena High. What what was uh, what what do you think the demographics were approximately? Um, well, there was busing, so you know who knows. But the you know there were. Um, I'll tell you about Gardena High. Gardena High is uh well we're we're supposed to be on Atwater Village. We are but real quick, real quick. Gardena High had had a farm. There was uh um, there was every I mean it was a total mixture of race, and the faculty was a total mixture of genders, and you know there was fluid and you know, even back but, then, you know, yeah, but no one talked about it. Uh, and then there was uh you know our neighboring city was Compton. And on the extreme, the neighboring city was Torrance. He went from like one of the richest uh, uh, neighborhoods in in California, Torrance, all the way to you know this uh, uh, other area that was also rich in culture. Like, believe, believe me, like all of these amazing musicians. And to this day, you know the Locke High School, uh, Reggie Andrews, is guess guess his name is, like he was the music person there at the school. And all these musicians came out of there. But that whole area, I remember seeing Patricia Russian uh, down the street in the, you know, I guess she lived at Carson at the time. And uh, and Dugo Chancellor was like in the neighborhood too. There was just all these fantastic musicians. It was a great place to grow up. Um, and then, you know, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't make it unless we were going to be in LA or Hollywood or something. So we and you wanted to make it in music. Um, at this time, at this point, um, I thought maybe I would go into theater or 
some kind of designing something sets or something. And then I just, uh, it just started happening. Yeah. So I just went with it. Uh, did you eventually move to Atwater? I did not. I moved to Echo Park. Oh, yeah. so, so when the boys were in, uh, Atwater. Yeah. Or at least the recording studio. I was still was. in Gardena a little bit. And then I moved to Echo Park up on Mohawk, top of Mohawk. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good area. Uh, at the time there was, um, uh, there was, uh, you know, the local, the, there was a local, um, gang, gang in that area <laughs> and I lived next door to them. So I got to see all kinds of stuff. In that you know, it's backyard. crazy. People, people say, why would you move next door to a gang? Yeah. When I moved to Atwater, <laughs> I had no idea that our next door neighbor were in a gang too, until they spray painted the tree. Mm. And, and we were like, now, why would you spray paint a tree? And later we realized you spray paint everything you want if you're in a gang. Yeah. Is that, is, did you know that you were moving in next door? I did not know. Right. I did not know. Right. But, you know, I, they would be hungry. I'd give them food and, you know, or I was, you know, I was a good neighbor to them. I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't get past that, you know. Right. All, all I know was that they would be out all night long and then they'd come home and the mom, they would, they'd be most afraid of their mom. Yeah, they they they'd go whatever they were doing all night long. They'd come home and the moms yelling at them, and then they, you could see like fear in their eyes, you know. So okay, you would then go to Alvarado and cut through Silver Lake, right past Rockaway Records. Yeah, go get, under that little freeway part to get into Atwater, mm -hmm. and then you would jam with the boys. The way mm -hmm. that I am picturing it in my head is. Everybody would get a little baked, pick up their instruments, and just rock out for a while until there was basketball. Oh, you had to play had basketball. Half, yeah, we had a we had a half court. I think it was mostly Czech had mostly basketball. <laughs> Were you any good at basketball? I was really good with that. Oh, yeah, I was a ball boy for the Lakers. Get out of town. No, there's like a, there's a if you if you search you search engine. You're like the, uh, the ESPN Money Mark. Um, I think it, the the, the uh, Stefan uh, uh, interviewed me. Um, he was in a band called Caveman. He also was a sports writer, and um, there's an interview there. You you'll, you could read that. What what era Lakers? This is uh, the seventy one seventy two season. I was twelve years old. I can't even. Who's who? Do you remember who's? Oh, on that, that was the greatest team ever. Jamal Wilkes. Um. Let's see. Wilkes was uh, it was uh, Gail Goodrich, yes, Jerry West, Wilt Chamberlain, uh huh, Elgin Baylor for part of the season. Um, wow, this is a Jim good Jim McMillan. Um, you were twelve years old. How did you get from Gardena to the Forum? Well, I, my parents had to drive me, and they were totally into it. Yeah. Are you sure. watching? Are you watching Winning Time? Uh, I watched some college ball just recently. No, no, no. The HBO. There's an HBO series. Oh, with uh, John C. And, yeah, yeah. Are you I haven't. This? I haven't watched it yet. But yeah, he's a buddy of mine, and Is he? he sent me a, a screenshot of him and uh, um, who's the gentleman playing uh, Magic? I don't know, but he yeah. looks just like him. And uh, there's at the game. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, um, it'd be interesting to get your take because Jerry West is not looking good in this portrayal. Well, wow, you know, which is shocking. Jerry West, um, 
I I love Jerry West, and I love and you might like him more after you read his book, which his wife encouraged him to write. Like he didn't want to tell his story, and then I'm glad that she convinced him to tell his story. <laughs> Let's um let's go to uh Atwater Village in yeah. the, in the 90s. Yeah. And I feel so blessed that I was there. I was a giant fan. I had Beastie Boys posters all over my room in uh on 3300 Glenhurst. Um little did I know that the three bad brothers I knew so well were so close. They were just a minute away. I had no idea. Mhm. Uh well, we I, didn't have the internet. No. Yeah. And the paparazzi didn't seem to care. No, they were um, maybe kind of written off. I think at that time, which is which is fine. I think right after um, Paul's boutique, they were written off. The, Felt weird. It is weird. It you know what how it how it made me feel a little bit in retrospect is uh, Weezer after Pinkerton. Mm. The Blue Album was such a giant hit. Yeah, Pinkerton creative. Yeah. Interesting, just like Paul's Boutique. Because they didn't sell as well as their debuts, a lot of the critics wrote them off. And it seemed like Rivers and, and Weezer got super depressed, but it didn't seem like the Beastie Boys got depressed. <laughs> Did you find them as depressed people when no, you were playing basketball with them? No, not at all. I mean, it wasn't... Uh, um, I think there was some underlying pressure to like, you know, do something with the, with the dough that they had, the rest of the dough that they had. But um, I really think that after three or four months of building the studio and then putting instruments in there and microphones and laying down a few tracks, like, got pretty confident. They, they, they knew they still had it. They knew that there was something was going to happen. We just didn't know what it was. Now, what was different about uh, Check Your Head was it it didn't rely on samples. I mean, not that relying on samples made Paul's Boutique bad. I think it's a masterpiece because of those samples. Well, it's a masterpiece because of the samples, which kind of is another kind of uh, kind of entrepreneurship. You know, it's like buying work, you know, repurposing work or something, but which was a kind of a new thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, to but, that extent. Yeah, but when you're playing music, you're also doing the same thing. You're taking something you like, some James Jamerson bass line, and getting it and twisting it up, too. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, you're, you're creating your own master. That, but that's really the only difference, I think. Right. Yeah. It, uh, so so they, they realized in Paul's Boutique, we can't do that any longer. No, their accountant realized and told them. <laughs> Which is understandable. <laughs> And they they pick up their own instruments. They get some musicians like you and Mario C. And well, they were did. in a band. They were in a band before, so they played. Yeah, but it wasn't this kind of music. No, and um, yeah, it, it it helped them turn a corner. And that's what it did. And when we got to um, so what you want, the organ thing at the beginning, 
Oh, there it sounds like a sample, but that's me playing it. So right on. Um, you know, it got to that point where a song like Gratitude, where there's no samples, and it's you know becomes a big song. And but then I think the first single was Jimmy James, mm-hmm. which is Hendrix. But mm-hmm. then also you know mixed in with other beats, but playing the playing of the instruments was uh, kind of the key thing for for check your head and creating that syntax of way the way to work um carried over to ill communication too so so but ill communication was made half in atwater and half in new york city oh yeah because they missed new york um well yeah i guess maybe so yeah i mean it was about time to go back yeah did you go out there to record in new york as well yeah did, did were they a different Beastie Boy in New York? Well, they, they lived in. The, I mean, like the two cities are not comparable. I like there's just a different thing going on. So um, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, did they feel? Do you think they felt more comfortable back home in New York? They felt pretty comfortable in Los Angeles. I mean, they live in Los Angeles now. Yeah. So I mean, so no, no, no huge change for you. I think it's just like in your own vicinity, your own world, you know, like you can make home wherever. Yeah. But New York, it was special back then. Right now, I don't know. You know, I haven't been to New York in a little while. Um, I'm just hearing that it's like, I mean, everything changes. Yeah. So there you go. So when you're when you're laying down the keyboards for uh, these these songs, is it a jam session first that leads to that or... Do they already have something written and they say, what can you add to this? Mm. Well, the magic of uh, the, you know, the, the album, like, let's say, check your head. It's a little bit like a mixtape. The whole magic of it is that every song kind of starts, has a different starting point. And I, I think when you work on music and you you do the same thing over and over you're going to come up with come out of us your input's going to resemble your output so sometimes we'd start with just um i mean typically you could have a beat and like hey this is a cool beat and let's put something over it but since we were playing our own instruments not sampling when you're sampling kind of go for the beat first but when you're playing your own instruments there's other things that can happen you know and you know the whole sabotage thing which was later a record um it, was, it started with ab's baseline mm. which is you know and then everyone jumps in um but so sometimes it was um a guitar part or a sound you know mm-hmm. and everyone was on the same page like we're all trying to move forward trying to make something here and let's everyone chime in it was it was cool it's it, it, it seemed like the uh the overall vibe for let's say check your head to ill communication was like seventies hard funk. Would you hmm. agree? I don't, I don't know that category, but you know, seventies <laughs> hard funk. Okay. Okay. Like, like the, the, this, the shaft soundtrack maybe mm. was, was a ghost okay. a spirit. If you, yeah. If I say so. Yeah. If you say so, I'm going to let you say it. Because I'm on the other side of it, so Are I you? don't know. What side is that? I don't know. Wait, what side? Well, we're making. I'm. We're making that stuff. Mm-hmm. So the you know the recipient is getting it somehow, 
and doing something, you know, it's going in your head and turning, churning out something, some other ideas, but, um, can we talk about G Sound for a second? Yes. This is the studio that G Sun. G Sun. Son of G. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, there's a G spot. <laughs> is there? Well, that's where they lived, you know, with the gate. Oh, I didn't know. It was called a G spot. I didn't know. Yeah, that. the director's name was ah, I forgot his name. <laughs> but it has it was a big G on the gate. That was why it was called the G spot. It, okay, but G Sun uh -huh. happened because I think the building, there was a business there. Okay. And it was uh, Gilson or something. It right. wasn't Gelson, like the supermarket. It was Gilson. And the, the I and the L had fallen off. Oh. The sign. So it, de it definitely just said G-Sun. Right. It was just G-Sun. So the studio was upstairs. Yes. Um, it was a ballroom dancing dance hall. Yeah, ballroom dancing. And, and I heard like... Um, Had floors like this, beautiful wood floors. Mm -hmm. I, well, I hope they were more beautiful than these. Um, but but it's a place that people could practice dancing, ballet, um, mm -hmm. jazz, yeah. whatever it is. Right. And uh, apparently the, the Beastie Boys took it over, started renting it out, turned it into a studio. Did you help build the studio as well? Yeah, that's right. How about that? I remember Mike and Adam carrying uh, some uh, drywall up the stairs. There's no elevator. <laughs> Boy. Uh, on this same, is this the same block as the Club TE? That little bar? Yeah, it's the next block over. Next block over. Yeah. So right on Glendale Boulevard. Uh, well, no, it's on the same block, but it's, yeah, it's a few, it's doors, some doors down. Yeah. Uh, wh what did you remember enjoying about Atwater back then? Um, that it was quiet, for sure. It was yeah. really quiet. It, it's kind of, to me, it was kind of hidden. Talk about a G spot. It was kind of hidden between the craziness of Hollywood and, and almost the, the five freeway was a nice divider between. Yeah. The rally, world. the alley river is what it was. The main divider, the river, the river and then the freeway. But, um, you know, at that moment in the early nineties, the, um, the, the Silver Lake folks would never come over to the Atwater side. That was like far. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> it was far and it was also, what, what, would, what would you do there? There's nothing to do. <laughs> it's like, why would you even go there? You know? There was the Bigfoot Lodge was over there. You, well, I, I that, heard was, you, yeah, that was on the other block, yeah. But I heard you guys uh, would party at the, um, at the little golf course, the little three putt. No, we never did. Oh, you never did? No. But did you go to that? Uh, we never went to that whole street, the Los Feliz Street. Anytime you wanted to party, you'd go to Hollywood. No, well, you know what? Actually, we we didn't have to. We had our own clubhouse. People would come to, to yes, the, the Atwater come, Clubhouse. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's better. Yeah, we didn't have to go to Hollywood. We didn't want to. <laughs> no way. Hollywood just wasn't cool. We just didn't have to go there. We had our, we had everything. We had, we had a place to chill. Everyone had keys. We could go there anytime. Mm. Um, you know, that's where we were working and playing basketball and, <laughs> and whatever, everything. Is the B3 your favorite keyboard for that era? No, no. I'm actually, actually on that check your head record. There's no B3 on the album. What, what are you playing? Do you remember? I'm playing a Korg CX3. Oh. Yeah, some and old, old solid state organ that 
probably was on a bunch of uh, reggae or ska, a lot of ska records and yeah. Are you a religious man, Mark? You mean in this fact that, uh, like, uh, well, do you pray at night? Do I pray? Uh, no, not per se. I mean, uh, I feel uh, blessed constantly. When something creative can just come out of somebody, I, I maybe there's something faulty with me, but I feel like there's got to be something else going on. Do you ever feel that way? Mm, I, maybe I feel tapped in, but I, um, I work hard at uh, trying to keep my slate clean, but I also work hard at, um, I, I, I make an effort at trying to not judge things, just keep myself open, you know. So when you say, I think I, I think when that when you just keep yourself open, like you just are inviting something. So when you say keep your slate clean, you mean your mind, your whole, your your spirit. Yeah. Just be open to the yeah. vibe of the moment. That's right. And then uh, things will just happen. When I'm called to do a session, I will um, tell them like, hey, when I get there, I, I'm ready to do it. So have it ready. And then, you know, okay, it's ready. Come in. Uh, I was reading about... Uh, James Gadsden on one of the Kendrick Lamar tracks with a hired uh, Gadsden, this amazing drummer. Um, he is, you, you can see him on, uh, on some footage of playing drums with Bill Withers, playing this cool blue swirl drum set. Um, he got called in for the session and then he sat at the drum set and, you know, the microphones are on. And he put the headphones on. He said, play the track. And then he was. Banging it out on his. On his. Uh, pants. And all right. We got it. That's it. And they used it. <laughs> yeah. He, he intended to only play on his legs. No, he was uh, just trying to work it out. And they recorded it and they got it. I love that kind of creativity. Don't you? Yes, of course. Yeah. But that's why you collect all these different instruments and stuff, right? Well, they're like colors. Yeah. Yeah. So, I uh, mean, if you're a painter, you go to the store and buy colors. That's right. Back in the day, you couldn't do that. You'd have to, people were color makers and finders and makers, right? They'd find, hike up the mountain, find some flowers and grind them and whatever. Um, but for a person like me who loves sound and colors of sound, yeah, collecting musical instruments is the thing. So, okay, yeah. again, are you guys just stoned, tired from playing basketball, and you're just kind of bumbling around the studio, just like playing no, with we ideas? we kind of weren't bumbling around. We had like purpose, like, and, and, you know, honestly, we weren't really that stoned. Uh, we were energetic and being stoned would have... I mean, it depends what you're smoking, but 
even at that time, like it wasn't scientific, you know, the marijuana. It's like we just not some that looks cool. And then there was guys who knew. Right. You know, there were people who knew, like, oh that that that's this uh, you know, um, Jack Herrera stuff and that's the freaking <laughs> if you smoke that you're gonna go to sleep. And right. This one this so probably it was all sativa, you know. Yes. But then um we weren't that stoned or drunk. Uh, it, there was caffeine and marijuana a little bit, uh, but it was, you know. Well, this is why you guys were able to produce so many records. There's a lot of outtakes for uh, Check Your Head. There's a bunch of tapes. There's like tons and tons of tapes. Because um, the the boys were learning how to yeah, play this music? As, yeah, as... so we were just recording everything. Yeah, it, that was cool. So we shouldn't be surprised if, if Capital, who, who now feels okay putting their name on the album... <laughs> If if they come out with some like three CD box, well, I don't know. That would be the boys want, I know, wanting but, to put it together. But what I'm saying, if that happened, you would say, well, of course, there's there's yeah, dozens I can of tell other... you right now, it's not going to happen. But because uh, yeah. because the boys are that idealistic. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not in uh, I'm not in that whole mix anymore. Right, but they've never done it before. Um. Just, yeah, well, just, well no, not, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Well, I also think that this is maybe, um, I don't want to say Gen X thing, but it seems like there's there was an era where bands were just super idealistic and weren't into having 18 greatest hits albums. Yeah. Or rehash stuff. They wanted to go forward. That's right. And we haven't seen a unreleased B-sides box set from them hmm right there was a book and a movie did you yeah. like the, did you like the movie in um it was fun yeah did you go when it was at the Montalban? yeah i did i was there too yeah and uh it was great to hear them tell their stories especially in that way um were there any stories there that were sh surprises to you or had you heard them all uh, i kind of knew most of those stories yeah yeah now, um, you've had two or three solo albums? Oh, no, I have seven. Seven solo albums. Yeah. But no, a lot, most of them are, I mean, I didn't promote any of my records. So they're just there. I wasn't trying to, like, you know, sell. I don't know. Maybe the companies that I was working for didn't like that. But I wasn't out to, like, do that whole cycle. I just didn't like that cycle. I still don't agree with it, you know, and. Touring for me was, mm, it was fun to tour with the Beastie Boys, but then to go on my own tours, which I did, I did that a little bit, you know, I would open for the Beastie Boys, um, and there, there was a tour with Tribe, and it was, I opened the show with Tribe, and then the Beastie Boys, and um, that whole tour was, it was difficult to do, because I was like triple duty, or double duty, but um because you had to play for your own your own band. Yeah, it was mostly, mostly triple duty because I had to arrive at a different time, had different sound check times, and hold another band. And then I also had to keep the Beastie Boy schedule too. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of hard. Were you on the tour, the, the 94 Lollapalooza tour? Um, Beastie Boys, yeah. 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 That was an amazing lineup. That was that in that lineup, we became friends with everybody like everyone became friends yeah um 
we I'm became, talking like Parliament. Breed, yeah, it was Breeders and George and Parliament, uh, Funkadelics and and Green Day and the Fordhams and yeah, it was just a fun and the pumpkins, smashing pumpkins, and, yeah, and the pumpkins, yeah, it was crazy. Green Day had to open. Green Day opened and pumpkins closed. Yeah. <laughs> That was such a great Lollapalooza that I was living in San Francisco at the time. I came down to LA to see it again a couple days later at Cal State Dominguez because it was, it was too much music, you know, like I think even like the Muffs or somebody was on stage two, like stage two was a great concert all by itself Yeah, with the boredoms, I think were on the far side and, uh, uh, um, um, the, uh, Far side. No, I think the breeders were on the main stage. Yeah. Uh, alcoholics, I think, were there. It, it was um, it was nuts. It was super nuts. But again, you had to be also I think at the time Green Day had the number one album. So so here's America's top selling band. You have to be there at like noon to see it. And they yeah. played their whole album, which was fine, because it was good. Yeah, they'll sell more beer, you know. <laughs> what you try to do you try to get the crowd there early but i wouldn't have put them if in front of anybody else they were the well, new at kids. the time at the time you know that's uh they were a promising band you know? right who knew there who was knew? a lot of bands that had hits at that time and that you know i was it they just had the one hit but who that's knew? right who knew right yeah. right um okay so let's let's talk about atwater today when was the last time you were in atwater recently well, I went to get my dune. Oh, good. Used to go to Proof Bakery, like in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was a, I want to say that that was a Dominican bakery mm-hmm. back in the day, mm-hmm. in the 90s. There was a shoe repair key. There was a shoe repair shop. Uh, the woman there. Uh, was not very nice <laughs> and she had a key making machine so we'd make keys and one out of every you know five weren't good so we had to go back oh no and she wasn't very nice there was a guy uh, there was a parrot store there <laughs> just sell birds no it was a bird and it was just birds it was a pet store but it was just birds <laughs> Um, and then there's a lot Latino market across the street next to the Dominican bakery. Mm-hmm. And at night there was some gang activity. You know, there would be broken, broken windows, and there was a couple. Uh, um, yeah, I noticed uh, looking at old old footage uh, photos that the little trolley used to go down the middle of yeah uh, Glendale Boulevard. Which which makes sense now because that boulevard is so wide. Yeah, that's you right. can kind of see where it would fit. Right, right in that middle section. Yeah, uh, it was a red uh, the trolley, right? The red the red line or red the, trolley, the red car. Right. Red car. Yeah. yeah, and it would go from downtown through that area, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, people would ride to Union. Well, Union Station was you know the main terminal.
So when did you know I can play I can play music with great musicians and even not great musicians, but I can I can hold my own. Mm, I don't know. It all kind of snuck up on me. Did you start with piano? I started with everything. Yeah, it wasn't just piano. Was it uh, Gardena? In uh, Gardena, yeah. I started actually with, I would have to say, with a tape machine and a microphone. I had an SM57 and a 3340 TX 4-track machine. And I would just record with that, uh, either a little guitar or a little piano or singing into it, bang out a little beat. Um, How old were you about this time? Mm, 15, 16. So you're in high school with a four track. Yeah. My parents were cool, man. They let me do, um, build a little studio in the house. Yeah. Wow. It's awesome. Yeah. Your, 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 your parents are Mexican. My mother's Mexican and my father's Japanese. Yeah. Japanese. Well, my father, here it is. This is the essence of it all here. My father was an electronic, um, engineer and my mother was from a family of musicians. Oh. And so that pairing, like that's uh, that's me, yeah. That's what happened. So if so if you're singing or playing the guitar, your family's not going to tell you to knock it off. Exactly. And then also, if I'm recording and using my electronics, and like they're going to also help me like figure out like how how that shit works. Wow. Did you ever take lessons? I did for a second, yeah. But I cheated and I didn't read the sheet music. I just would memorize the pieces. Do you so know? that's like cheating. So then I went to, they told me to go to ear training and that was the best thing that ever happened to just do ear training. Cause then the teacher, the first day was, um, what song miss, miss, Ms. Peterson. It's like, what song do you want to learn? I'm like what? You get to choose my song. <laughs> it shows a Stevie wonder song, of course. And I, you know, I got to, this, it was, I mean, I'm glad I left that other class, uh, music class, piano class. But at the same time now, you know, I wished I would have done, been able to do both. But I, I chose my path. You still don't know how to read music? No. There's a lot of musicians. I mean, I can do it, but not sight read. Yeah. Would you say that half the musicians you work with are in your boat where they don't really... I, I, I don't know that many musicians who... Well, let me put it this way. I know musicians who read music, but I don't know any musicians that need to read music, like in the kind of music that we're doing. They don't really need to, to do it. And a lot of it's just tradition because now nowadays you can just say, oh, play it like that, you know, um, you know, like that Mike Bloomfield thing or play like... Um, Play like the Carol Kay thing. Not a little bit like James Jamerson, but play it more like Carol Kay. You know, you could do that kind of thing. So so really, the, the thing that musicians need to know is the history of music. You freaking, you're, you're the, the only thing a, a musician really needs to know and do is to listen. And I think <laughs> that strategy is just helps you in life just to be have emphatic listening, listen to people, you know, get a perspective of how are how else are you going to do it? So yeah, your output really should be just small and what you're putting into 
it, you know, what's backing that little bit of output should be like this grand thing. That, that's the trick. So going back to your whole thing, how does it come to you? Well, you have this giant, huge well of ideas and then you really only need three or four drops of it. And then, you know, that's how it works. I had a uh, uh, an art teacher who told me that painting is really just looking. Yeah. And it sounds like playing is it's listening. listening. Absolutely. 100%. And so aren't we living in a great time now where... I can tell my Siri to play any of those. I can well, say, I don't know if that's a great time. Not you know, most things still aren't digitized. Well, that's true, but but let's say I have a six-year-old yeah. or a ten-year-old, and and I'm and I'm like, have you ever heard Stevie Wonder before? And I can have Alexa play Stevie Wonder right now. Mm, yeah. Whereas if I was ten years old, I only had four records. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm, I'm mixed about that. Are you? Yeah, definitely. Because of royalties and all that? No, just because it's just, it shouldn't just be that magical. <laughs> it just takes some work? It shouldn't come out of just thin air, which it does right now. <laughs> it's like coming to bazaar. You know? It is bazaar. So in my head, here's, you know, the, there's, there's this whole, uh, you know, the chain of events. <laughs> now you can just, hey, uh, whatever the name is, it's a, I don't want to say the name because that thing will go on. <laughs> it's got to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the chain of events is like you, somebody er, chopped down a tree and built a musical instrument and then somebody learned how to play it and then somebody composed something on it and then somebody on this other end over here learned how to make a microphone out of some potassium sulfate, some crystals, and then amplified it with some transistors and tubes and all that like and then they got together and made a recording then that you know it's just like it became a record just thing with grooves and you can see it you can actually see the music in it like it's already now now it's just so bizarre like it just pops up well you can see the groove then the needle gets those grooves and interprets them and then um and, and there was a joy in finding these records at record stores. Well, there is a joy there, yes. There's still a joy. It's still a joy to find new music. And, and so maybe that's, you know, like, I definitely am, like, Apple Music, and every day I'm finding a new record. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, it's this records that I have in my catalog that I'm just finding. And I noticed that there's a giant chunk, more records in my collection that are... That that are not on. That's right. Digitized. Was sabotage made in LA? That was made. God, I can't remember. I think that was made. Gee, I can't remember. It's okay. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I think that was New York. It sounds more New Yorky to me. I think it was New York. It sounds a little aggressive. Um and um <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, there were some other music studios there in Atwater. At uh, that time? Yeah. Huh. They were just sneaky little music studios. But um, all the music, the music scene was in Silver Lake, just like right over the bridge. Spaceland. Spaceland was a big one. Yeah. I love Spaceland. Stopping ground for every band played there. You know, back then? Back then. Every band that ended up on K-Rock played at Spaceland. And isn't it crazy that the parking was bad? Uh, it didn't have the name Spaceland on the thing. 
and everyone still knew to go and it sounded great even when they moved the stage from one side well, to the other yeah, side. Yeah, it still sounded great. You had the little smoke room yeah. in the back. The plexiglass. I love that place. I think that was my favorite my favorite club. Hmm. There you go. Do you have a favorite LA club of before or after? Hmm. Well, when the boys got here, the they did a, a performance at the country club in the Reseda. Hmm. Doug Weston's. Doug Weston's country club. It was still open at that time. They booked a show only to perform the song that became what's the became the animation one. Oh, um like Shadrack or Yeah, Shadrack. Yeah. So um they booked a show just for that to film it and then Adam and um then Yao hired a team of people to colorize it. Yeah. Huh. Um I remember going to that venue a lot as a kid. Favorite venue now? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The Wiltern? I don't know. Wow. The Wiltern's nice. Okay. I just saw the Linda Lindas play there. You did? Yeah, with Jawbreaker, yeah. Do you so. think that they have a little bit of a future? <laughs> of course they do, yeah. Because they're yeah. like, what, 14 years old? I went to the record release party um, yesterday. Yeah. Huh. Last night, Troubadour. Nice. The Troubadour is a cool club. Yeah. You know, it's got a vibe. It's an old club that's got a vibe and you can, you know, the, if the walls could talk kind of thing. You know? I feel like it's all it's got because it's so small. It's so yeah, small it and like, awkward. It's great to see a band there, though. It sure is. You know, if you want to see your favorite band that close, close up. Yeah, that's cool. I saw Dinosaur Jr. there mm. a number of years ago. And that guy doesn't care where yeah. he plays. It's it's a 10. It's a hall, it's all on full all the time. Yeah, same with Mike Watt. You know, same with uh, you know, and even all those guys, Pearl Jam played there. They'd kill it. You know, the, the Stones played at the Echoplex not yeah. long ago, you know. Yeah. And they, I heard they killed it. Well, before COVID, but Right. Uh it doesn't matter, man. You know. The venue doesn't matter to you. No, not really. It's the vibe. I mean, well, it's, it's true because again, Lollapalooza was a damn field, and it was incredible. Polo field. Oh no, Lollapalooza was a Lollapalooza was a, yeah. in Cal State Dominguez Hills. It was just a dumb field. I forget where it was in uh, in San Francisco. Maybe it was uh, what a Lollapalooza. Yeah. Well, the Tibetan Freedom. We didn't talk about Tibetan Freedom. I was there too. Yeah. But tell me about that. It. Was Golden Gate Park. It sure was. Foggy and cold. 96? 96, I believe. Yeah. Foggy and cold? Yeah. I don't remember that, but yeah. What do you remember? Well, I don't... I was backstage, so... It was cool. I mean, we were with everybody backstage. Richie Havens, man. Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth. I remember after that show, checking my tags. Because the Beastie Boys told me, you need to pay attention where things are made. Right. Because, and then they showed us these horrifying videos yeah. of Chinese people being tortured and Tibetan people being tortured. And um, so my sneakers are New Balances because they're made in the USA. So here it is now, 30 years later, and that one concert has changed how I do things. Cool. There you go. Because I respect this, these people. They're intelligent people who care. And I, and I, I want to align with that. I mean, God bless heavy metal but if iron maiden had told me 
Yeah. <laughs> stuff. I probably would have listened. But here's the Beastie Boys who are intelligent people. They've seen the world. And this is what they're bringing back to us. They're like, pay attention to shit. Did you catch any of that from that tour? Of course. <laughs> I went from playing with the 60,000 people in the audience <laughs> to 16 people because I was all, after that concert, I went on my tour um, to, to do the um, Mark's Keyboard Repair, promote that record. Mm -hmm. And our next stop was Music Millennium, this music shop in Portland. And there was 16 people in the audience. It was funny. It, it was awesome, too. Yeah, but all sixteen were there to see you. Yeah, and exactly, it's like it doesn't really matter the venue. So right, I'll just play anywhere. And famously, I mean, I'll, I'll leave off with this. Uh, Art Blakey said it. Jazz messengers with you know jazz messengers like, and Art Blakey, the drummer. Uh, I mean, he was, um, his band was intensely beautiful, and uh, he said, if you're not appearing, you're disappearing. So I would just take any show that I could get. But, you know, I, w I would take the show, but I'm not really, I didn't really like touring, but whatever. When the, when the music starts, I don't even know where I'm at. I'm just, I'm here. That's awesome. Money Mark, thanks for being here. Yes, sir. We will see you soon. Goodbye. How great was Mark? You know who else we'd fix their fence? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony Jordan, here's a sticker for your skateboard. Here's a Happy Meal. Here's a new banjo. Every donation you hand over keeps this insane project a-rollin'. So shout out to our Patreons. Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinky, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, and our newest Patreon, Dougie Gyro. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal 25 bucks or more, and we will list you in the here in LA here in LA website that Mark Johnson is building and will be there forever. You'll also be given a number to denote how early you got in. Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Number two, George Wright. Three, Rita Joanne. Four, Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Houghton. Six, Rob Baker. Seven, Kev Chang. And eight, Brenda Garcia. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but uh, you're an escrow? You can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. Post this on a Beastie Boys uh, fan club Facebook group. You can even tell your friends. Tell them how Here in LA is spelled and it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who has plenty of wood for your cabinet needs, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone, Jordan Katz, and the three bad brothers you know so well. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and Jordan for saying, hey, want an interview, Money Mark? Shout out to Guardian! Guardian!